Uh, you know that we are praying for uh, several churches in our fellowship that are without pastors. Um, one of the churches that is without a pastor uh, voted back in January to close. Um, and so they are trying to work through the sale of their properties and the distribution of those assets as is uh, in accordance with their constitution and state and federal laws. Uh, so we want to continue to pray for Calvary Baptist Church of DeRider um, as they work through that process. Uh, and we've had the blessing of gaining a few uh, families from that church, uh, the Good Nose and the Higgins. So we're thankful that God has brought them our way. Uh, and we look forward to allowing them to become uh, fully involved in the ministries here at Calvary Baptist Church. Another church a little bit closer to us is um, struggling along, and we have one of their families that comes regularly on Sunday nights, and that's the, the Shermans. They come from Grace Baptist Church in Tully, uh, so we want to be praying for that church as they uh, decide and determine what is uh, God's will for them. Uh, they've been without a pastor now, um, I think, since probably uh, February or March, and uh, Pastor Frazier retired because of health reasons, so we would like to pray for them. Uh, and they're, they're still, they would love to stay open and be a, a church there and a representative of God in that community, uh, but they're struggling as a small church to find uh, candidates and people to uh, ask to consider being a candidate. So if you pray for Grace Baptist Church, that would be appreciated as well. All right, so here we are. <clears throat> and somebody asked me, uh, I think it was last week, Pastor, what are you starting for a new series? Well, we're not starting a new series yet uh, because uh, we're in between series and we're going to be on vacation here in a couple weeks and then the Janssen and Rensburg family are going to be with us. Ben's going to be speaking in between there. So we're doing a couple of one-off ser sermons here uh, as we kind of uh, just uh, go in between our series. And I'm not going to tell you what the new series is going to be yet either. You just have to wait for that, okay? Um, but this morning, we're going to take a look at, I think, a topic or something that is very relevant for us today. Uh, and you know that I'm not a topical preacher, uh, so even though we're kind of doing some topics here and there, we're going to be doing them expositorily and not just, uh, not just topically. Uh, so this morning, we're going to take a look at individuals and lives, and, and, and when we face difficulties in life, how do we handle those difficulties? Um, the title of our message this morning is Big Problems. How many people, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many people today are working through big problems? All right, we might be, we might think we're working through big problems at work, in our family, uh, in our, in our, uh, even in our country. We might be working through uh, some difficult problems. We have to admit, as a country, we are a very divided country at the moment, um, and and we want to be praying for our country that God would bring peace, that God would bring um, even a unity. Uh, of course, not unity at all costs. It's kind of like in a church, you're not you're not unified at all costs. You're unified over the things of God, the doctrines of the Word of God, and so we want to be unified as a country on what makes us a great country, but we talk about problems, and, and you know, some people, we've, we're praying for Clayton, who has cancer, we're praying for Paul, who has a broken back and a broken neck. Somebody said to me when I shared uh, the results of his motorcycle accident, and he walked out of the hospital, uh, yeah, he did, but he's uh, kind of on a, a very thin edge. If he does the, moves the wrong way, does something that's not right, uh, it could become perilous for him, and so big problems, Okay, we find ourselves in a world uh, where our problems sometimes get magnified and they look really, really, really big. And how do we handle such big problems? Well, can I tell you this? No matter how big your problem is, our God is bigger. 
You got big problems, we have a bigger God. Does that mean he's just going to take the problems away and make them vanish? Not likely. He could, but that's probably not the route that he's going to take. And so uh, we want to take a look here this morning in a psalm, Psalm 56. Uh, and we're looking at the psalms this morning, and we readily ident- identify with the psalms, don't we? Uh, because we, we know that David wrote many of them, not all of them, but David wrote many of the psalms. Uh, and David was a man like we are. He, he, he loved God, and he struggled. He struggled in life. He struggled with difficulties. He committed nasty sins, things that we would look at and say, how can anybody that loves God and follows God do those things? Well, I don't know the answer to that. But you know what else we see in this, in, about this man named David? He was a man after God's own heart. And so even though he was a flawed, sinful wretch, he was determined to be a man after God's own heart. And why? Well, David has a history that even though he was a sinful man, he sought God, he went to God, he confessed his sins, he wanted his relationship to be right with God and to be what it ought to be. And so that's why he became a man after God's own heart. And we, as I said, we appreciate the Psalms because we can readily identify with them. Um, And perhaps you can relate to this Psalm, Psalm 56. David wrote this Psalm because he knew his enemies were great. Now, David was a man of war. David was a warrior, and he was a good warrior. He was a successful warrior. Uh, You know what people said about David when they compared him to King Saul? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Okay, so David was a man of war that God used to deliver Israel from its enemies. And in doing so, he had lots of enemies. He was the kind of guy who didn't very easily put his head on his pillow, whatever shape that might have been in those days, and rested easily. He had guards. He, he, he slept probably very, very uh, unsoundly. So at the, at the very noise of something in his surroundings, he was up and trying to figure out what was going on because he knew that there were people who were after him. David was a man who had big problems. And sometimes he handled those improperly But in other times, like we have here in Psalm 56, he handled them the way God would have us handle our problems in our lives today. All of us have problems. All of us have struggles that we face from time to time. And my prayer is that uh, if you're facing a struggle today or a problem in your life, that this psalm will remind you of the greatness of our God. How great is our God? We sing another song. I've referred to it recently. We serve an awesome God. Our God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all-wise, and he always does what is best for his children. So this particular psalm is written while David is in a desperate situation. Let me read to you what the Nelson Study Bible says about this psalm. It gives a good summary of what's going on in David's life when he penned this psalm. It says, Psalm 56 is a psalm of lament, a psalm of sorrow, if you will. This poem of David has the same setting as Psalm 34, the flight of David to Achish at Gath. The fact that the two of David's psalms are tied to this one event demonstrate how devastating the experience was to David. Cut off from all he had known, David tried to find refuge among the Philistines. Isn't that ironic? Who was one of his biggest enemies? the Philistines, and yet David sought refuge among them. That tells you how bad his life was at the moment. When they turned on him, he nearly lost his life. He escaped by pretending to be insane. 
In such a desperate situation, David could have thrown in the towel, but he chose rather to focus on the greatness of his God and trust his God to bring him out. So you see, when you and I struggle, and our struggles threaten to overwhelm us, our focus must be like David's. It must be on our great God and, and trusting our God to deliver us. So let's see this morning exactly how David put his focus on his God and our God. Would you stand with me? We're going to read together Psalm 56. Timothy, you can skip right past that first slide because it talks about the, uh, the title of the psalm. We'll get right to verse 1 where it says, and you read it with me if you would, Psalm 56. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Wherever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are evil against me. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps when they lie in wait for my life. Shall they escape by iniquity? In anger cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from failing? That I may walk before God in the light of the living. Let's ask God to bless our time together in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you for uh, the opportunity to be together to worship you. We've worshiped in song this morning. We've worshiped uh, in the Lord's table. And now we continue our worship as we open your word this morning and we learn from the pages of scripture. God, we ask you bless our time together. We ask that your Holy Spirit will teach us the things that we need to know from the pages of scripture this morning. Bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So big problems. Who has big problems? Well, our God is bigger than the problems that we face, no matter how big those problems seem to be. So one of the things that will help us uh, as we focus, we see it in David's life, we see David's perspective in verses one through four. David's perspective. Um, we've mentioned before how, pers- how much perspective uh, impacts the way we look at life. When we're facing struggles or trials, we must look at them from the perspective of a child of God. We can't look at them as a, as a person who has been defeated or a person who is, who, is, who is in a bad way. We look at the struggles that we face as a child of God. That's how David viewed his life here in Psalm 56. And what does the child of God's perspective look like? Well, first of all, we see in verses 1 through 4 that David's focus, his focus is on God and not on man. 
You see, sometimes when we face struggles, when we face trials, when we face difficulties, we get our eyes off of the Lord and we get them on man or we get them on our circumstances or the situations that we find ourselves in life. And so when our focus is not on God, but on the things that surround us, we find ourselves making our problems bigger than they really are. So David wants us to remember and sets the example for our focus to be on God and not on man. How do you know that his focus was on God? Well, first of all, we see that he cries out to God for mercy. And he cries out to God for mercy because he knows that the men around him are out to destroy him. They're out for no good for him. Now, as we think about this, David crying out for mercy. What is mercy? Anybody want to tell us this morning what mercy is? What is mercy? Undeserved favor. Is that what you said? Okay. Any other thoughts of what mercy is? What is mercy? Mary. Not receiving what we deserve. Not getting what we deserve. Okay. That pretty much sums it up. All right. So if we think of mercy, uh, even in the courts, I mean, a person who is caught in the act, dead to, dead to rights, if you will, what does he do? He doesn't say, oh, I didn't do it. He goes to the judge and he cries for mercy. He doesn't want the punishment that he knows is is coming to him because he was caught in the act breaking the law. David cries out for mercy. and, And mercy is not getting what we deserve. David knew what he deserved. And you know what? He deserved what all of us deserve. All of us deserve the righteous judgment of God. But by God's grace, our undeserved merit or favor, we don't get what we deserve. You see, grace and mercy, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other, really. And so we we pray and we ask God for mercy, and he grants us this amazing grace that he is so well known for. Okay, Now, David knew that there were enemies around him, and there's always going to be struggles in life. David knew that there were people that wanted to fight against him. So when he's in this situation, what does he do? He looks to the Most High God for comfort. David knows that no matter who the enemy is, God can give him comfort. And David finds his comfort in his God, and he knows, he's absolutely confident that his God will care for him. You say, again, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, we know David's testimony. In Psalm 34, David writes this. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. In verse 4, he says this. I sought the Lord and he heard me. He delivered me from all my fears. Wow. I sought the Lord, and when I sought the Lord, when I cried out to the Lord, he heard me, he delivered me. Then verse 5 says, they looked to him, and they were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. That's what God does. That's the outcome for the child of God. When we look to God and find his deliverance, we become individuals who are radiant. We want to testify of the goodness of our God. And that's what David has done here. He he cries out to God for mercy. He receives that mercy from God. And he is overjoyed with what God has done, even though he is facing these huge issues and these huge problems. Here's another part of David's perspective. Instead of fearing man, he trusts God. David did not fear man because of where he placed his trust. 
You see, God, David placed his trust in his God. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in the New Testament? He said, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's, that's, that's Jesus' advice to his followers. David knew that advice way back in the Old Testament. Jesus went on to say, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So even though David's life was always uh, on the verge of being over because of the enemies he, sur- he was surrounded by, he didn't fear those enemies because he knew that his soul was in the hands of his God. So whatever comes his way, he can move forward, trusting God for protection. There were many people that wanted David dead, from Saul, who was the king of Israel, to the Philistines, and countless others. But he did not fear them. Instead, he put his trust in the one true God. We see this lack of fear when Jesus is talking to the woman caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees caught this woman in adultery and they bring her to him and they probably didn't bring her nicely. They were pushing and shoving and, we caught you, now you're in trouble. And they shove her in front of Jesus and they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law that Moses gave to us says that we should stone her. What do you say, Jesus? You see, not only did they want to harm the woman, But they wanted to test Jesus. They wanted to see if they could catch Jesus in in a way that would compromise his testimony. Um, And so Jesus, he's writing in the sand, and he doesn't even look up. He's writing in the sand, and they ask him these questions, and he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. See, he didn't say, don't stone her. But he says, if there's anyone amongst you that are accusing her of this sinful act, you go ahead and cast the first stone to put her to death. Interesting. You know what happened? They all walked away. Because they all knew that they were just as guilty as she was. And so it's just her standing before the Savior. And, and he looks up and he says, where did all your accusers go? How come there's nobody left here to accuse you? And she says, Master, they're all gone. They all left. And so what does Jesus say? He says, go and sin no more. You see, he didn't just excuse her sin. He called her to repentance. He called her to a right relationship with God. And when she had a right relationship with God, she could be forgiven. He demonstrated this love and forgiveness to her. And this truth is based on the very character of God. You see, David could place his his trust in God, even though he knew he was a sinner because of the character of God. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The woman at the well was, I'm sure, very much afraid of being stoned for being caught in the act. When she was brought to Jesus, Jesus called her to repentance. She, she responded to that repentance. She saw the love of Christ and she understood then that in love, perfect love casts out fear. She didn't walk away in fear. She walked away forgiven. She walked away knowing that Jesus had forgiven her sins and made her right with the Father. Wow. 
in perfect love, there is no fear. David knew God loved him. And listen to this, listen to this truth. God is still loving mankind today. God loves mankind. God loves the world. God loves those that are in the world. John 3.16, you all know it. Who wants to quote it? Anybody want to quote John 3.16 for me this morning? What does it say? That's right, Levi. For God so loved the world. The world! That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you know that God loves you, you live like God loves you, or at least you should live like God loves you. And when you're living like God loves you, because you know he loves you, you know what? There is nothing to fear. Nothing. In Psalm 118, David wrote this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, David says, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side. I shall not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. So what is David's perspective? David's perspective is, I'm going to trust God and not worry about what man can do to me because the the worst that man can do to me has no impact on where I will spend eternity. So that's where we must be today. If we have big problems, our trust must be in the one who can lead us and direct us and forgive us and bless us regardless of what man does to us. So as a result, we, find that we see that David finds comfort in praise. You see, because he trusts God, what can he do? He can praise God. Man, isn't it a wonderful thing to praise God? I mentioned on Wednesday night at our praise and prayer evening that when we are praising our great God, it helps us stay focused on who God is. That's why the songs that we sing are meant to help us focus on the very nature and the very character of our great God. Our, fo- our songs are not man-focused. And if it's, if it's something that sings about our, our position or our condition, it's not so we focus on that, but it's, fo- it's so that we focus on what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, through the word of God. So our focus is on the things that God does for us, and that causes us to praise God. We're going to sing a song as a closing song, at least that's what's on the list here. His mercy is more. Man. You and I praise God for the abundant mercy that he has poured out on us and continues to pour it out on us again and again and again. We also see that David finds comfort and praise in that his fear is gone. He, 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 when our focus is fixed on the Lord, we understand that he's always going to work in a way that is best for us. Sometimes we don't understand what is best for us. That's why we trust him. But we, can, we know that whatever he does is going to be what is best for us. When we think about that, we understand that there is no reason to fear. David makes a bold statement here in verses 1 through 4. He makes an absolute statement. He says, I will not fear. I will not fear. 
You see, fear is one of the things that Satan uses uh, to cripple the child of God. Satan wants us to be fearful. Satan wants us to live in fear. And when we live in fear, Satan kind of has control of our lives. And shame on us for letting him have that control. I want to read something for you, just a, a few of the words to a song that Zach Williams write, wrote and sings. Um, it's called Fear is a Liar. And here's the song. When he told you, that's fear or Satan, when he told you you're not good enough, when he told you you're not right, when he told you you're not strong enough to put up a good fight, when he told you you're not worthy, when he told you you're not loved, when he told you you're not beautiful, that you'll never be enough, fear, he is a liar. Stops you in your steps. Fear, he is a liar. He will rob you of your rest, steal your happiness, cast your fear in the fire, because fear is a liar. When fear told you you were troubled, you'll, never, you'll forever be alone. When he told you that you should run away, you'll never find a home. When he told you you were dirty and you should be ashamed. When he told you you could be the one that grace could never change. Fear, he is a liar. He will take your breath, stop you in your steps. He is a liar. Then he goes on to say, let your fire fall and cast out all my fears. Let your fire fall, your love is all I need. Let your fire fall and cast out all my fears. Remember, fear is a liar. Satan is a liar. He wants to hold you captive, and he does that through fear. David reminds us when we are following after God and our focus is fixed on who God is and we're trusting God, that fear is gone, it has no power over us. Fear is He is a liar. We have no reason or need to fear. In verses 5 through 7 of this psalm, we see David's predicament. Now, I don't know everybody's predicament that you're in right now, um, but, and it could be a very serious situation that you find yourself in, but I think David's will rival most of our predicaments as we look at it this morning. So as we continue our text this morning, we're going to see that David is not talking from a situation where all is good in his life. There are, there are situations in his life that we probably can't quite understand and wrap our minds around. Us, around. He says here, um, all day long they twist my, my words. What do we see in these verses 5 through 7? First of all, we see that he has all-encompassing struggles. His, his struggles are all-encompassing. His enemies have nothing good or nice to say about him. They're not speaking the truth about what he says or what he does. They're taking his comments out of context. They're making him sound like something that he's not even saying. Have you ever been in that situation where the world takes what you have to say and they twist it? And and when you listen to what they say you said, you say, I never said that. Where did you come up with that? How did you get that? That's not what I said. David says, that's what they're doing. They're twisting my words. They're saying things that I never said. We see this happens as as followers of Jesus. We see that happening to us in the world in which we live. We must be certain that when we speak, we speak the truth all the time. So we don't have to worry about accusations made against us if we're always telling the truth. This speaking the truth is done in love. 
done in love. And we see that when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he talks about speaking the truth in love. And what does speaking the truth in love do according to Paul in in the book of Ephesians? Well, it makes us as a body of believers mature and grow up in the things of God. It causes us to represent our Lord and Savior well. Can I tell you this? I've said this many times on Sunday night. I don't know if I've said it on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to say it now in case I haven't. For many, many years, we look back on the history of the church, even, the, even when I was growing up. For many years, the church spoke the truth, but they didn't speak it in love. And they were, they were hurtful and they were not kind. I've, I've said this before. You and I, we have a message that is not easy to speak to unbelievers. It's a message that calls all mankind sinners. People don't want to be told that they're sinful, right? So when you start the conversation with somebody and you reveal to them that they are sinners, they might not like it. But you can say to them that they're sinners in a way that is going to help them respond in the way that they need to respond. We don't have to be hurtful in the way we communicate truth. Paul says we must speak the truth in love. And when we speak the truth in love, we grow up in a body that is loving and kind and represents the Lord well and has the purpose and the desire that Jesus has. Why did Jesus leave heaven? Why did Jesus die on a cross? Jesus left heaven. He hung on a cross so that he could redeem mankind. If we're belligerent in that message of redemption, we're going to shut people off. We're going to chase people away. We want to make sure that we communicate the truth of Jesus Christ and what he came to do in a way that is loving and allows them to respond. Now, that's also, let me tell you right off the bat that that the way I deliver the message really isn't going to impact whether or not a person comes to know Jesus as their Savior because God's already got that figured out. But can I tell you that we don't need to make any more obstacles along the way? Can I tell you that the way we interact with people who don't believe the things that we believe is important? We want to love people. That's what what we're commanded to do. We don't love what they do sometimes, but we love them. And we communicate truth to them. We communicate grace to them. We, We communicate the message of God's truth and gospel to them so that they can respond if they are called to be part of God's family. David knew that. David faced all encompassing struggles. And yet, he rested in the truth of God. And he understood the truth of God. David says, these people that are around me, all their plans are evil for me. Nobody is planning good things for David. They only want to do what is harmful to David. Listen, can I tell you this as well? The world is not our friend. There's a hymn that says, the world is not a friend to lead us on to grace. Um, The world is not the friend of the Christian. For a long time, they were okay with us being Christians, but that's even changing. They don't like the fact that we stand for what is true and what is right, and we stand for this book. They're not our friend, but that doesn't mean it changes the way we treat them. There seems to be a renewed boldness against the things of God and against the word of God in our world today. You know what, though? no matter what they're planning against us. And and evil may be in their plans for the church of God. We know that it is in other places around the world. Just for naming the name of Jesus Christ, you can be put to death in some countries. Praise God, it's not that way yet. 
We don't know how long that's going to stay. But can we trust God to lead us through those difficult times, even if it comes to that point? David says, their plans are evil. They want me dead. They want me gone. But what does David do? He lives out his relationship with God. He, he shows other than others that he's a follower of God. You see, our hope is not in being treated nicely by the world, but knowing that we are in our Savior's hand. God is there to go with us every step of the way. Jesus gave this warning to his disciples, and it works for us today as well. He says this in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, and he knew they would, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, they hated me first, so you can expect that they'll hate you too if you live like me. Verse 19, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world, doesn't gonna, the world isn't going to help you on to serve our great God. So let's understand that even though their plans are evil against us, it doesn't matter because God is on our side. The next verse there in, in Psalm 56 talks about escape. Now, this is not David's escape he's talking about, but he's talking about those who think they will escape the hand of God for their mistreatment of the people of God. You see, David's prayer is that they do not escape the judgment of God. He stated they continued the onslaught of his enemies against him. It just wouldn't stop day after day after day. David prayed that God would deal with them in a way that would be right and in a way that they, uh, they deserve to be dealt with. But he was content to leave their fate, if you will, in God's hands. From a human perspective, he was quite capable of dealing with those who were against him. He was a great warrior. And if he took matters into his own hands, nobody would have said, ah, you didn't have a right to do that, David. But David said, I'm going to trust God. And I'm going to let God deal with them as he sees fit. So, you see, David was in quite a predicament. I'm glad I'm not in those kinds of predicaments as David was. But what helped David work through these predicaments? Well, he had certain prejudices. We see them in verses 8 through 11. Um, I remember when we took history of Western civilization in Bible college with uh, Dr. Rembert Carter. He used to tell us that everyone, every person has prejudices. Now, I remember the first time he said that, I thought to myself, I don't have prejudices. Yeah, I did. And I still do. Every person, no matter who you are, you have certain prejudices. He would also tell us that we all approach history with certain preconceived ideas. It has to do with the way we were raised. It has to do with what we were taught, wherever we were taught growing up. And so he encouraged us to make sure that those preconceived ideas came from a biblical approach to life. And you know what we call that? We call that a Christian worldview. So you and I, you and I as the children of God, we need to approach life from our Christian or from our biblical worldview. We need to judge the things that are going on in our life from the word of God because that is God's standard for us. All right. Um, so David's prejudices. First of all, we see that David was a w- aware of where, or that God was aware of where David goes. Anywhere David went, God knew it. 
He says, God, you number my wanderings. You know where I'm going. No matter where David was or what he was doing, the Lord knew where he was and he was watching over him. Not just that God knew where he was, God would take steps necessary to keep him safe. Our God knows where we are. He knows when we're in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa. And we were never in those kinds of jungles. We were sometimes in concrete jungles. But everywhere we went, God took care of us. Even when people were breaking in and stealing stuff from our house or our church, or there were gunshots going off around our house, God knew where we were. Never were we out of God's presence knowledge of where we were. God knows our wanderings. He knows every step we take. Now, sometimes that can be kind of a, ooh, that's kind of creepy. Or, man, if if God knows everywhere I'm going, I better go in the right places. Listen to what he says in Psalm 139. David says, where can I go from your spirit? And although there's no answer there, there's an implied answer, nowhere. I can't go anywhere from your spirit, oh God. So what does that tell me as a child of God? Praise God, thank you, Jesus, that no matter where I am, you are there. I can't go anywhere from your spirit. Or where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. If I ascend into heaven, well, that's obvious, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, and that doesn't mean hell where Satan is or his eventual abode for all of eternity. It's the deepest parts of the earth. If I make my bed there, you're there too. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What is the picture that David is painting here? You know, when I, when, whenever we get out of the car, I walk around from the driver's side to the passenger side and the first thing that happens if my wife is with me is she either grabs my hand or my arm, usually my arm. And part of that's habit because when she had two bad knees, she needed help to walk around. But, but now she still sometimes needs to be steadied or whatever, so she'll always grab my arm. It's, it's always there for her. She never comes up to me and goes to grab my arm, and I go, what are you doing? <laughs> now, when we had our, our boys in the house, they also knew that there had to be an arm available for mom. So sometimes she wouldn't grab my arm, but she would grab Micah's arm, and I'm like, what are you doing? No, just kidding. But anyway, the arm is always there. The hand of God is always there for the child of God. He wants to help you. He wants to hold you. He wants to lead you through the steps that you are about to take. Understand that he is always there. So I said, some of us might think that that's creepy. But when we stop and think about it as needy people, and you know what? We're all needy. As needy people, this truth brings us great hope and great comfort. It does make us accountable, and that's a good thing. But there's great comfort in knowing that God is always with me. David also says that David accounts for my sorrows. He knows my tears. He puts my tears in a bottle. In fact, he puts them in his bottle. And what David is saying here is that God is fully aware of the sorrows that you and I face. He knows what causes our sorrows and he knows how to console us. We see here that David is confident that God is concerned with what is going on in his life. 
Keeping tears in a bottle is a reminder that God did not and does not forget the suffering of his people. Does not and will not ever forget your sufferings. He takes the steps that are necessary to help alleviate the suffering or help his followers walk through that suffering, whatever it might be. What does David say in Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You are with me wherever I go. God is always there walking through the suffering. We've all seen the, 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 the poster or the poem of Footprints in the Sands. This man walking on the beach and, and he saw two sets of footprints. And, and then at times there were only one set of footprints and he thought about it. It was always when it was the worst time in his life, the most difficult time in his life. So when he got to heaven, he asked God, why is it God that you left me during those times? Why is there there only one set of footprints that are in the sand during those difficult times? It's like you left me and God says, my child, my precious child, it was during those times that I carried you. He didn't leave us. He never leaves us. He never will. He's going to carry us through those struggles that we face. Now, there is a dimension there that we have to let him carry us. And we don't want to fight him. We want to let him do what he always does. But here's the other thing, or another thing. God always has my back. Always has my back. You see, when we cry out to God over our enemies, God doesn't turn his back on us. Enemies, look at David when he was in Philistia, and he was trying to get some comfort and some reprieve from his enemies. He was in the land of the Philistines. They turned on him, and they were about to kill him. So he started pretending he was insane. Have you ever been that bad off that you had to pretend that you were crazy? Now, some of us pretend that we're crazy even when we're not that bad off. But David had it so bad in his life that he had to pretend he was crazy. I mean, you can go and you can read the account. There was drool running down his beard. He didn't comb his hair. It was all part of making people think he was crazy so they wouldn't kill him. That's how bad it was. But David knew something. David knew that God had his back. We talked about this last week, how God, has, God is for us. What does that mean? It means that God has our back. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we talked about the fact that God has our back. He is for us. Romans 8, 31 says, um, it, what shall we say then to these things? And we talked about in the, verse, the verses preceding, verse 31, all those amazing things about our salvation that God has provided for us because of all those incredible things that God did to make our salvation a reality and the results of our salvation in our daily life. Because of these things, this is the truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? Again, one of those rhetorical questions Absolutely no one can be against us if God is for us. God has our back. David knew that, and we know that as well. At least we should know that, that God is indeed for us. Why is God for us? Well, we see in the next statement that he keeps my trust. You see, God is absolutely trustworthy. David puts his trust in God, and God will not break that trust. He never has broken anyone's trust. This truth is a given. God will keep 
his word. Even one of his names tells us about the fact that he is trustworthy. Yahweh. Jehovah God. You know what that name means, right? He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the God who makes promises and keeps promises. Every promise he has ever made, he will keep. He's never failed to keep his word. Even when things don't go the way we might want them to go or we might think they should go, God keeps his word. Can you put yourselves in the mind of the Israelites when they left Egypt and they were on their way, they thinking, oh, smooth sailing to the promised land, and all of a sudden they get to the Red Sea and the, the armies are behind them and there's mountains on both sides. What do we do? God had their back. God made a way. God brought them through the Red Sea. Same thing happened when they got to the Jordan. Same thing happened when they were in the midst of the wilderness and they woke up and they didn't know which way to turn because they'd been wandering for 40 years. Where do we go? We're lost. God provided for them a cloud to follow in the day and a pillar of fire to follow at night. Why? Because God was for them. God had their back. David knew that. You and I know that. Why? Because God is trustworthy. God always keeps his word. Lauren Daigle sings these words. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, what are you going to do? Throw in the towel? It's not what she says in the song. She says, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. You are my strength and comfort. You are my steady hand. You are my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. You are way, you are, your ways are always higher. Your plans are always good. There's not a place where I'll go. You've not already stood. I will trust. I will trust. I will trust in you. Can I encourage you to remember that God is trustworthy and we can always trust in our God. And he will never let us down. We wrap things up this morning with the idea of the promises that David made. Because he knows who God is, because he realizes how amazing, how awesome, how incredible his God is, he makes some promises. As he closes out this psalm of lament, we see that he's come full circle. He realized how bad things were in his life, but instead of throwing in the towel, instead of giving up, he committed his way to the Lord. He trusted in his God to be his hope and his comfort. And let's see the response here in verses 20. 12 and 13. First of all, we see that David is accountable to God. David is accountable to God. He says, any promise I have made to you, God, I will keep. If there was any thought of wavering on his part about those promises, he shored up his commitment right here at the end of Psalm 56. He said, God, anything I've promised you, I will keep. I will do it. He vowed that he would keep the promises that he made. He's following his Savior. He's following his God's example. God kept the promises to David. David is going to keep the promises to God. He's going to pull out all the stops to be faithful to his one true God. We also see that David assures the Lord. What does he assure him about? He assures him that I will praise you, God. I promise to give you praises. I will praise you with my words. I will praise you with my life. Perhaps this promise was more assuring to David than it was to God because God already knows the outcome of David's life. 
He doesn't, David, he doesn't need David to make promises to him. He knows what David's going to do. But David is reminding himself of his need to keep the promise, to praise the Lord in the good times and in the bad times. I must praise my God. You see, he was confident that he would use the abilities God blessed him with to declare the praises of the one true God. God has blessed all of us with many things in this life. And it's important that we use those things he has blessed us with, whether it's talent or whether it's um, knowledge or whether it's money. Use those things to praise the one true God. You see, praise doesn't just come from the lips. Praise comes from the life. And then finally, David pledges allegiance to God. We, in America, we pledge allegiance to the flag. But greater than the flag... We must pledge our allegiance to our God. God. David says, you've been a blessing to me, so I want to serve you with my life. You see, when David revert, re- rehearses who his great God is and what his great God has done in his life, he realizes that he owes everything to the Lord. And in response, David pledges to serve and to be faithful to what the Lord wants from him. He's going to strive to be an example to others of what it looks like to be committed to the Lord. And David set that example. That's a good example for us to follow and to set in our own lives that that people would see that we are committed to the Lord because of the things that we do. I've said before that a good test of our commitment to the Lord is ask this question. What does it take to keep me from serving the Lord? What does it take to keep me from going to church? What does it take to keep me from being a test? And it should be that we go all out for God. We do whatever it takes to keep the commitments of serving our great God as a top priority in our life. Accountability, assurance, and allegiance are promises that David made because he knows who his God is and he trusts his great God. So what an encouragement it is for us to hear from the heart of David. He was going through some very difficult, dark days in his life, maybe even the darkest days of his life. And he looked at his God and he said, God, I know you've got this. And more than that, I know you've got me as well. So God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my hands, my life in your hands. And I realize that you're a bigger God than any problem that I might go through. As uh, we used to teach children, and I think maybe even saying it as we were growing up, the song is, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the valleys are his, the stars are his handiwork too. My God is so big. As we close up this morning with this preaching part of our time together, can I ask you this? How big is your God? How big is he? And if he's big enough, we're going to let him have control of our lives. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for how big you are. And we don't say that flippantly or in a funny context. We say that being fully convinced of how great you are. Great and mighty is the Lord our God. Great and mighty you are. Father, we are so thankful for 
who you are and for what you do in our lives. We're thankful for our salvation. We're thankful for the promise of always being with us no matter where we go. Uh, Father, we are, we are grateful to be part of your family. We ask that as we leave this place today and throughout this week and, and month and even until you come again, that you would help us represent you well. Help us to have the focus and the determination like David did. Help us to trust you no matter what the predicaments might be in our life. And then, Father, help us to promise to love you and to be faithful and to serve you with everything we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ben's here.